Hi, and welcome to Zernona Clayton, the podcast. I'm your host, broadcast journalist, and also a family friend, Michelle Miller. And we'll hear from Miss Clayton, or as I like to call her, Biggie. Big or the queen of the town. She is an incredible, wonderful, brilliant woman who for the last 93 years has been an activist, a civil rights visionary, and a broadcast media pioneer. Oh, what a life she's led. Take me back. I think of you and I think of your sister, Little, and I think about how both of you had such courage and such just zest for life. There was no mistaking either one of you were on an adventure and you called it life. But where does that come from? Oh, I think we had had it in us that we had some place to go and we were gonna get there. One day in the fourth grade, the teacher uh, measured us for our height because we were getting new robes uh, for the choir and for activities at school. And I found out I was 4'11", because we didn't measure folk in the house, in our home. Little and I were the only ones who were 4'11". Uh, everybody else was taller than we were. But it somehow, instead of making us feel shunted, we were propelled to make this height something special. 4'11 didn't sound tall, but we could make it tall. And uh, we were striving all the time to be somebody. Somehow, that was the striving to be somebody and go somewhere and do something was always in us, always in us. Little was like your partner in life. I know that there's a special bond between twins, but what was it? about the two of you because you guys were so different. We were the antithesis of each other personality-wise, but we were identical in terms of the love for each other. I'd do anything for her. She had lots of boyfriends, I didn't. And so I'd have to protect her, you know, tell stories <laughs> for, for them when they come, uh, or bump heads with the boy, two boys coming at the same time to call on her. Uh, I had to front for her and talk of, talk about, you know, what she's busy doing. So we were so close, I was willing to do anything for her. And then we'd laugh about it later. And uh, we were very popular because twins were rare. And we were so identical that people would always try to figure out, you know, who is whom, you know, which is which, who is whom. And um, it was always fun for us. You're the oldest. I'm the oldest by 15 minutes. Fifteen whole minutes. And a pound and a half heavier. And uh, and reason that the big part started is that people couldn't tell us apart. They said, well, this twin is a little bigger. The, the, the difference in the size and the weight was in my face. I had a fuller, rounder face than little did. And so when they would examine us, oh, oh, they're just alike. My gosh, we can't tell. Well, maybe, you know. On close uh, examination, you could see the difference. Uh, but we were so identical, a lot of people got us mixed up. Big, so many people in the 1940s, college wasn't an option. How did, how did you strive to 
go to college? Why Tennessee State University? In that school, the dean of the university was a, active in his church, and he was an officer of the National Baptist Convention. We were Baptists. And so my father would go to the conventions and take us with him. In the group was the dean of the university who said, oh, we'd love to have you girls at our school. And so they really encouraged us to come to things. But I'm glad I did because we had wonderful, wonderful teachers uh, and instructors and friends who had gathered that most people were from Tennessee uh, or the South. And we were both uh, concentrating on good grades, made the dean's list every time it came out. So each year brought about its own joys. For instance, when we came along as juniors, uh, someone came with the bright idea, why don't we make the twins a double Miss Tennessee State? How do you do that? They said, oh, you just nominate them. We were nominated for the Mrs. Tennessee the State. And almost the won. The Mrs. What was the campaign? What was your slogan? Uh, two is better than one. <laughs> <laughs> so she went from Oklahoma to Tennessee, following you, Tennessee to Illinois, following you, Illinois to Los Angeles, following you. But when it was time to go to Georgia, she didn't go. Well, there's some other things that preceded that. When when you get married, it's usually you and the, another person, your, your husband. Well, he took little on our honeymoon, so uh, the three of us went on our honeymoon. Biggie. Yes. Biggie. Biggie. I know, yes. I know people had to talk. Yes. People had to talk. Oh, we didn't care. We didn't care. <laughs> and Christmas, uh, I remember the first mink coat I got, he bought me a mink coat for Christmas. He bought little one also, you know, just like it. So he bought two mink coats. Um, but he, and this was Ed Clayton. Yes. But he did it because um, I think he was smart in that he wasn't prepared to break up this twindom. We'd been together all these years, and maybe to destroy it would not be a smart thing to do. So he just included her, and that made us both happy. So we, we went together. You got married, how old were you, Big? The first time I got married, 27, I think. Which was kind of late. Yes. I was in no hurry to get married. I had a career. I wanted to do so much. I was fighting the dragons of prejudice early on. And I didn't have time. And I also didn't have patience with boyfriends. How was Ed, Ed Clayton different? I mean, what attracted you to him? Oh, gee. I think it was the way, you know, the courtship went. I, I was what the people call popular, but it was not anything that uh, he was with Jet Magazine. He was the editor of Jet Magazine. So he was accustomed to women trying to get in the magazine. I wasn't trying to get in it. I was trying to stay out of it. You know, everybody <laughs> wanted to be, you know, publicity. We had gotten so much. See, Little and I got so much publicity as youngsters 
that publicity wasn't anything, you know, so appealing and necessary for us. So would you consider yourself an accidental activist in the sense that, I mean, you didn't go into this thinking you were going to be marching or, or, I mean, how did you go into this? Um, oh, I knew a little bit about the movement before I joined it. Um, but you never really know. Uh, there's no prescribed um, typed up list that we're going to do this first and do that second. There's no such thing as that. So the roles weren't defined. No, uh, you go where the trouble spots are and see if you can clean them up. So how did you enter? Well, I was invited by Martin Luther King. Um, And so uh, they, meaning Martin Luther King and his staff, realized they were getting more and more demands for all the the reality became one that they knew we got to do better in public relations. We got to be more active in this. So they need a press person. And so the name that kept propping up was Ed Clayton. You know, he was the editor of Jet Magazine and had an um, excellent reputation of being an excellent journalist. And one thing good that I can say about uh, Ed in that area was that he didn't josh around. I mean, he was business all the way. And so when um, uh, Dr. King called him, Ed was the kind of person who said, listen, we don't have to dilly-dally around here. You want a good press release? He said, I'll write you a good letter. I'll write you a good story. I'll be timely. He said, well, what do you pay? He said, we, we ain't got no money, <laughs> you know. But he said, oh, I'm not interested. And um, he, he kept He yeah. turned him down. Yeah, he told him. Oh, he was pretty uh, direct guy. And by then, we had moved to Los Angeles to open up the West Coast office of Jet and Ebony. And I then met a lot of the movie people. And I met one lady, and she introduced me. She was, her office was next door to Dick Powell's. Dick Powell was married to June Allison. And so we were living large. We got invited to everybody's party. You know, we got, and I came up with the idea uh, to my minister at my church. I said, have you ever had a fundraiser at any of these people's homes and movies? There are movie stars everywhere here. And <laughs> you, ever, you, yeah, you ever been to one? No, we never thought of that. But you know, we were, I said, well, let's think about that. And so I had my church. Uh, I said, well, let me be chair of one of these fundraisers. And the first person I asked was uh, Dick Powell. So I helped raise a lot of money through my church for the first time, black people being invited to those movie stars' homes, they loved it. Where it used to be that black people weren't on the streets of Hollywood after six o'clock. Dark time, you go home, except the help. Nobody was in Hollywood after dark. It was except the sun people who, Yeah, and, and with, uh, oh yeah, it doesn't matter. Six o'clock was a deadline. Not it wasn't written anywhere, it wasn't a law, but Everybody who lived there knew what the practice was. You don't get caught in Beverly Hills and Hollywood after six. And only the people who worked on the places, they used to say, you know, were living there. Um, But those same people lived and had their permanent homes on the black side of town. And, but it didn't matter to me. The thing is first to be thorough. I wanted to be sure I wasn't leading the pack to the wolves, you know, I, I wasn't that crazy. So I would check it out that 
they're decent people. And when I go visit my friend and Dick Powell right next door, you know, I'll ask him about what's so-and-so like and do you know Martin Luther King? And, you know, I prepped him. So I knew what I was doing. Doing fundraising is an art. Had you met him then? No. Oh, I had met him then, yes. So I, when you were in L.A., you knew Dr. King? When you were alone oh, in Los Oh, did I know Dr. King? No, oh, you I were didn't. just sending money. You were sending money to the cause. Yeah, oh, yeah. When you were in Los Angeles. But I, I, you know, I read everything, you know, right. all the black press. You know what's going on in the black community by reading the black press. So I knew what was going on. And then I lived with a journalist, you know, so we knew where everything, all the trouble spots were. When did you start working, I mean, more closely with the Kings? The first day I hit town. So what were you doing with them? Well, mine's a funny experience. Well, the office they gave me in, in the building where Martin Luther King's office was, was I was right at the door. It's almost like the greeter, you know. But the, one of the lessons, one of the early lessons I learned is that uh, when you move in, within the United States, if you move just from city to city, you can transfer your good reputation to the next city and saves you money because you don't have to pay um, uh, the service charges for getting your your, yes, uh, yeah. your lights, gas, and water, and so forth. But when I applied for our service, uh, there was a fee attached. I paid over $300 and $50 here, $100 there. But I figured, well, they didn't have the same system as other places. I hadn't moved that many times. Um, and I only found out that a white couple moved in right after we did uh, to join the movement. And I said, oh, I can be helpful because we just recently moved and uh, you have to pay a deposit on your utilities. And then I found out that she went and got her utility <laughs> to ask a few questions. She got her, uh, you didn't have to pay the deposit. She said, no. And I said, oh, my goodness. So I found, uh-oh, there's something that doesn't smell right here. So I asked one of the girls who lives here, and had been here a long time, I said, give me an address in a white neighborhood that's clearly a white neighborhood, and I want to use that. So she did. So I called a utility company. I said, I just moved here, and my address is 123 Maple Street. Do I have to pay a deposit? She said, did you have service in your previous location? Yes. Oh, you don't have to pay a deposit? You're kidding. And I said, now, what's your name? And uh, she told me, we were five minutes away from the utility office, found out that they only charge black people deposits. So I broke down that thing just by, you know, complaining. Well, a victory is a victory. When you win one, you'll try the next one. And the other one was in Los Angeles. Everybody who ever visited Los Angeles would brag about our streets being so clean. You know, nobody had trash in front of your house. Um, and it's because they would lay the law down to you. They always told you your street will be clean on Wednesday. They meant it. Now, you decide to park on Wednesday, you'll find trash on top of your car, <laughs> under your car, or in your car, or a ticket to. So that's why the streets were clean. They kept those streets clean mm -hmm. by ordinance. Well, while I was getting situated, I said, oh, by the way, what's the day for cleaning Auburn Avenue? They didn't know what I was asking, you know. They didn't even clean the streets. That, so they never heard of my question because they never had that service. They didn't know what's on. They don't clean the streets. They got to. The city does that. 
So I called the city. I said, when's the last time you cleaned them? Well, our equipment's broken down. Well, when was the last time you cleaned the streets? They couldn't even find a record where they'd ever cleaned the streets. And I said, oh, we got to do something about that. And uh, I broke that down. And so I, I went to Atlanta and got busy the first day I was here. Seems like you had a checklist. You know, I was the one that people said, oh, we got a problem. Can you help us solve it? <laughs> so I said, is there a, a track to my front door that said, here's the problem solved, you know, come here? Doctors could not practice in any hospital in Atlanta except the public hospital. They were barred from going to better hospitals. That meant that the patients who had funds uh, to pay for medical attention couldn't go to the good hospitals or the better hospitals, I should say. So I found out that um, these good hospitals, better hospitals, uh, were getting big bucks, but they were coming from the government. Emory University Hospital here was getting ooh gobs of money and yet would not let you know, black people be serviced in their facilities. And to me, I just said, oh, I, can, I got an avenue to nip this in the bud right now. So I wrote President Johnson and let him know that I was you know, working with Martin Luther King and was active in the church and so forth. And that we can't have this, and you're a good guy. And Martin Luther King thinks you're the best. And so I'm coming to you now to let you know that this is nothing but slave treatment. We need your help. He never answered the letter. <laughs> and uh, then that incensed me, because a nice guy would not have done that. And so as time went on, I had all the doctors. There were only 66 in Atlanta at that time. We marched around HEW, the federal facility here, and we wrote to all the Congress people, and we got appointments to go to Washington to visit them and tell them, this is an awful way to treat people. And then the other thing that was bad about that is that there seemed to have been like that black women had to have their babies on Wednesday. So like a special day. Now, I never had a baby, but I understand they don't come when you want them. <laughs> and you can't schedule their arrival. They come when they get ready. And so now we've got multiple issues here that I was really vigorously fighting for and got a friend in the White House who was just ignoring my letter. And so we made a call to some of the senators we felt would be sympathetic. But then I said, President Johnson is the key here because this comes from the top. So we went to Washington and had an excellent, excellent, very successful press conference because we were not an organization. We were a group were black doctors, and I was just the one leading the pack. And I said, you know what? I'm going to call him. Now, Michelle, I've got sense enough to know you just can't pick up a telephone and call the White House. This is big on the line. <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen. But when you're desperate, you try anything. So I picked up the phone and said, this is Anona Clayton from Atlanta. I wrote the president a letter. He ignored my letter, and since I'm in Washington, I'm a member of the group that you just saw on television. Everybody saw it on television. I think the president should know this is bigger than all of us, and we need to solve the problem. And my delegation is with me, and we'd like to see the president. Can we get an appointment today? Today. Today. Like like now. Now. (laughs) We're outside the gate. Now, Now, here's the thing. I've got sense enough to know that's not the way you do it. But 
I was hungry enough and I thought the problem was significant enough that somebody ought to do something. That's the way I think. And so uh, the lady took my information. Now, so now we just said, you know, a couple of them went to college there and they said, well, let's go out to dinner and top our evening because we've had a successful press conference. The phone rang as we were dressing and the lady asked for Miss Clayton. I said, this is she. And she said, um, "Can how many members are in your delegation? I said, five. And she said, well, can you be at the White House in uh, 20 minutes? And I said to myself, we could be at the White House in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so now I said to the guys, you know, don't dress. We're going to the White House. Come on. Our plans are changing. And so we got in a taxi and went to the White House. Now, my thinking tells me, oh, he's going to get away to kill me off. They're going to send me some aides from somewhere that said, we're going to see if we can help with the problem and shoo you out the door. I figured that was going to happen. So now we're sitting in the thing, and the funniest story is that these doctors had never been to the White House either. So they were looking around in this waiting room where we were, and they had objects on the table. I said, please don't steal nothing. <laughs> I said, because I'm sure the president's got some cameras in here somewhere, so don't steal nothing, you know. And everybody fell out laughing. Well, then I heard, uh, so a man came down the hall, and he said, Miss Clayton, I was there with a woman. And so it was obvious, and he said, uh, the president will be with you shortly. And so now I still have not accepted the reality that the president is really coming. They're just teasing me to make me feel good, so I'll leave and leave them alone. And so he left. You know, President Johnson's voice was distinctive. You know, you could tell it anywhere. So as they were approaching our waiting room area, they were chatting. And I, that's the president, the real president. <laughs> and here he comes, filling up the doorway. And he fell out laughing. He said, so you're the one who wrote the letter, said, <laughs> I wasn't a good guy. And I said, well, Mr. President, uh, my boss just talked about you so glowingly that you were such a nice guy. <laughs> and then all I did is wrote you a letter just to inform you that people are suffering and nobody seems to care. And for a nice guy, that was not what I expected. And he laughed. And so he gave me the moments to talk about the issue and then said, well, we're going to check into it. And then told us goodbye. Well, it was a good 20 minutes 30 minutes, maybe, that we were there. But guess what the president did? He thanked me for the, you know, being vigilant with the problem. Now, I was fighting for black doctors in Atlanta, because that's all I knew, really. And so the president called a press conference and announced, as of this date, all hospitals in the United States are now declared open and available to every citizen, no more discrimination. Well, we were floored and we weren't prepared for that. You know, I mean, he just, he didn't call me to tell me to, to watch my language and stuff. And so right away, every doctor in the United States called me, I think, you know. And the president of the National uh, Organization called me. The National Medical, Medical Association. Yes, ma'am. Called to N-M-A. say. NMA. Yes, yes. I love that organization. Yes. Oh, I know you would. Your dad was very active. <laughs> but when the president announced that all the hospitals, I mean, to this day, when I tell the story, I feel 
a riveting jubilation. But guess what? I have a moral to my story, too. I found out that when you have a victory, you can examine this victory and a lot of pearls of wisdom and enthusiasm will come forth. For instance, I've never been sick. Now, that's the blessing of good Lord. President Johnson had nothing to do with that, nor do the doctors. When you fight a problem, it doesn't have to be your personal problem. And I use that as an example. You know, I help people to have access. I've never used a hospital because I've never been sick. But I was in the hospital one day for a blood test or something they would do. I don't even know what she's doing. And the woman looked, looked mean, you know, like she wasn't very friendly. And most people are friendly, but she wasn't. But so she's taking the tourniquet off and she said, Miss Clayton, I um, want you to know that first, I thank you because I have a job here in this hospital. But everybody in this hospital who looks like me would want to thank you too because we wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. See, what happened, Michelle, is I was fighting one issue, the access of black doctors being available to go to these other hospitals. I didn't realize how many job openings that created. Like she told me that everybody here who's black owes you because of the fight that I helped to lead. And if that doesn't make you feel good, nothing will. And it doesn't have to be for you. And I tell people all the time, do good even if you're not the beneficiary. I'm thinking about that because I think you had the access. There are a lot of people with that, but they sort of keep it to themselves. Yeah. And and so what would you tell people like that? It was like knowing, like to kind of go out there on a limb. Well, I really don't want to be critical of everybody because I don't know everybody. I do know this, though, that too many people would have the opportunity and the access to a solution and won't do anything. They'll give excuses as to why they can't. But when I make speeches to people, I'll just say there's always something you can do. Thank you for joining us for our special podcast series with the incomparable Zernona Clayton. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Big, We hope you'll come back next time for more insider stories and reflections from one of the first ladies of the civil rights movement. Subscribing makes it easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. And please, please be sure to rate and review us to help others find the show. This has been Zernona Clayton, the podcast, a production of Boom Integrated and DA Brand Activation Group. Our podcast is executive produced by Naima Rashad, Dennis Adamovich, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai, with post-production by Boom. I'm Michelle Miller, your host. Thanks so much for listening. And don't miss the documentary, Sonona Clayton, A Life in Black and White. Available anytime on Brown Sugar, Bounce TV's subscription video on demand service. Download the Brown Sugar app today on your phone, PC, or smart TV. Go to brownsugar.com for more information.